Right now, the risk reward has never been better. Maybe some VCs look at everything with the lens of like early stage investing where they expect a 100x payoff. What's crazy is with Bitcoin, you might actually get that. <laughs> Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Are you having a good week? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got the second interview in my series with my good friend Dan Held. This time we're looking at why Silicon Valley doesn't understand Bitcoin. But before that, do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, first up, we're going to kick off with Casa, the very, very best in Bitcoin security, what I use to protect my Bitcoin. I've been a customer for eight months, and it's great to be protected from my own idiotic mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And if you want to get your Bitcoin security shit sorted, then Casa has a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, which comes also at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best in class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my friends over in Estonia, sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. Not only do they accept Bitcoin, they are spreading the love of Bitcoin through football across the planet. Sportsbet.io is the front of shirt sponsor for Southampton and also the betting partner of Arsenal. So if you're watching Premier League football and you keep seeing a Bitcoin logo, you can thank Sportsbet.io. And with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. Football, tennis, American sports, motorsports, they've even got esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And also, let's talk about Exodus Wallet. The month is over. I was telling you that I needed a desktop wallet for managing my Bitcoin because I am increasingly managing my business using Bitcoin. I pay people in Bitcoin. I get paid in Bitcoin. So I need a way of administering this. I use my cast of my deep cold storage, but I have a little bit of day-to-day -day play with Bitcoin, which I use for managing my balances. And this month was the first month I had a play with the Exodus wallet. Gotta say, I love it. It's really simple. Like I could try and give you a whole bunch of reasons. It's just the UX. They've absolutely nailed the UX. It's so easy to use. So if you want to check out Exodus Wallet, just Google Exodus, head over to Exodus.io or search the Apple or Google App Stores for Exodus. Okay, so on to the show today. And I've got my good buddy Dan Hill back on. This is the second in a three-part mini-series I've been doing with Dan. And today we're looking at what Silicon Valley gets wrong about Bitcoin. Now, Silicon Valley is obviously the hub for innovation and technology, but it has been surprisingly quiet on the Bitcoin front. While Coinbase has been a huge success, a lot of the innovation has been pushed into altcoins. Dan thinks this is down to key cultural difference. Whereas Silicon Valley likes to move fast and break things with iteration, Bitcoin's really the opposite. Bitcoin is slow, it's conservative, and it's really hard to change. But these characteristics are absolutely key for Bitcoin to succeed in becoming the base layer for the financial system. But Dan thinks after years of misunderstanding Bitcoin and pushing alternative narratives like blockchain, not Bitcoin and ICO bullshit, Silicon Valley may finally be waking up to Bitcoin. Dan has worked and lived in Silicon Valley for a long time. He worked at Uber and built some really cool Bitcoin companies before he moved to Kraken. So he knows the city, he knows the culture. And he recently wrote an article in his newsletter on this topic. So if you want to check out his newsletter, I do recommend you go and sign up. It's in the show notes. And if you've got any questions about the show, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Just a couple of notes before we finish. Have you signed up to my newsletter, neveredit.com? It's a daily Monday to Friday update on Bitcoin, tech and macro stuff. And also head over to defiance.news, the latest show, The Wolves of Wall Street Bets, where we look at all the crazy shit that happened the other week with GameStop with that group of DJing Reddit gamblers. Anyway, have a great weekend. I love you all, and I'll see you all next week. Good to see you again, Dan. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me back on. Doing well. Were you, uh, were you up listening to Elon Musk this morning? Well, who wasn't listening to Elon Musk last night? I guess last night for me was uh, he did. He recorded really late Pacific time, and I'm in California. But, um, yeah, certainly the whole world was talking about it. It's huge. Well, it was morning for me, so I had to set my alarm mm -hmm. for... Uh, 
5.45 because it was a 6 a.m. start. But I, in some ways, I felt like that was an interesting thing to listen to, knowing what we're going to talk about today, really. I mean, because people are kind of like hypothesizing what he meant. But uh, I just thought it was quite interesting. So we should let people know, like, for this show, we're going to be talking about what Silicon Valley doesn't understand about Bitcoin, which is a really important subject for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons is why there's so much shitcoin in that comes out of Silicon Valley, which we should talk about. Uh, but also why there's kind of like this aversion to uh, Bitcoin. And it's like this is a subject that's been really important to you, right? Yeah, it's been huge for me because I've been out in Silicon Valley for eight years and I've seen these different waves of you know, uh, hype cycles, right? We had not just Bitcoin, but there was blockchain, not Bitcoin. There was Ethereum and ICOs, and now it's DeFi. And that's just it within the Bitcoin crypto sector. You know, if you zoom out from there, VR, AR, drones, <laughs> you know, the, Silicon Valley is, it never stopped being a gold rush city. It still is. Oh, sorry. San Francisco never stopped being a gold rush city. Silicon Valley is part of that, of course. And I think that bleeds over into new emerging tech. And what happens with that is it unfortunately leads, leads to some circumstances where there's tons of hype and not a lot of substance. And that's that's where, you know, I think we're going to dig in a little bit more today around um, the issues I had with that and how Bitcoin has been perceived over the eight years I've been here. Right. OK, let's do a bit of background first, like let people know, because you say you've been there for eight years. Do, do a bit of let's let's check bio. Let's talk about let's talk about the CV, the stuff you've done there, because I think it's relevant. Yeah, so I've, you know, I've been spent eight years in Silicon Valley. I've worked at five different crypto companies. I was the first employee at blockchain.com. They bought my app called ZeroBlock, which is the most popular mobile tr price tracking app back in 2013. And it's been kind of a wild run. I mean, at blockchain.com, I worked with CZ, Andreas Antonopoulos. It was a, it was a really wild time. Um, and then from there, you know, went to go work on ChangeTip, where we did micropayments over social media. I also then worked at Uber on Rider Growth, which is a very pedigreed growth product team in Silicon Valley and a growth marketing team. And then finally made my way back to crypto with our crypto and Bitcoin with Interchange, which was an accounting software. So I have built in and worked on pretty much every type of crypto product you could imagine. Uh, same with like Kraken. So currently I'm at Kraken because Kraken acquired Interchange. So I've had, I've worked in crypto eight years, five companies and two exits. And from that experience, you know, in, in living in Silicon Valley, living in this, you know, this this gold rush city, this gold rush area of, of San Francisco and Silicon Valley, I've seen so many of these narratives ebb and flow. I think it's been a little bit frustrating for me when you understand why Bitcoin is valuable to see the quintessential Silicon Valley hype cycles, you know, miss the mark on an industry I know so well. Let's dig into the Uber role you did a little bit because i think you know i i'm aware of these companies you've created uh but i think i think a little bit of insight into what the experience of like at uber would probably be a nice like setup for the topic we're going to discuss today like tell me what that environment was like also what kind of stage in uber's life cycle were you there yeah i joined uber in early 2016 and that was i would say later stages but still very high growth we were moving from 10 million to 100 million users and Uber at that time was the hottest tech company you could work at. I mean, they were cool and sleek and they didn't give a fuck. I mean, they <laughs> they were actively illegal in every single city they launched in. I mean, that's who, what better vibe to fit a Bitcoiner's vibe than to work at Uber? Like Uber was like, well, yeah, the government rules aren't really rules. They're just more of guidelines and we're going to break them. I mean, that's pretty cool. Also... Uber was built and Uber's growth team was built from the remnants of the early Facebook growth teams. So Uber's growth team is one of the most pedigreed growth teams. And by growth, what I mean is that they're looking at the journey of someone from the awareness stage around being aware of Uber's brand to getting them to installers and sign up and then go take their first trip after the first trip, getting it to for them to share it with their friends. So they look at that customer journey and they try to optimize that journey for the most minimal amount of friction, which enables the company to grow really, really rapidly. Facebook and other companies were the first companies to have proper growth teams. Uh, Uber's team was comprised of ex-Facebook growth folks like um, oh, ex-Amazon and Facebook growth groups. So Amazon had a really big growth culture as well. So Uber's growth culture was, it was incredible. And our job was to grow Uber globally as fast as possible. 
And I think that experience is really interesting, both from like the growth aspect of understanding how do you grow a product for, you know, going from 10 million to 100 million, make it relevant and understandable in all these different geos. And then as well internally with how we communicate it internally. So Uber required that you write that you wrote a TLDR, a too long didn't read on top of every email thread that was that had a lot of different, uh, like a lot of folks CC'd on it or at the top of like a one pager that you wrote on a certain initiative you wanted to do. And I think that really was really formulative to how I approached writing, how I approached storytelling, which was that people don't have time for this. They want, they want the story right away. They want it punchy. And this was both applicable internally at Uber, but also on Twitter and in my articles. I try to write simply, clearly, and get to the point because, you know, I think a lot of people out there are great writers but sometimes they wax poetically using, you know, very, very complicated verbiage that, you know, maybe some folks in Ivy League schools would know, but maybe many others wouldn't. And I think they're phenomenal writers. I'm just kind of sad that their message isn't able to reach more people because they've written it in such a, I would say, kind of like a um, esoteric way. And within Uber, did, did they? Did you have to kind of learn the culture, or do they teach you the culture? Like in terms of the expectation that you know, this has got to be aggressive, you, you know, the results are aggressive, you're expected to work hard, you're expected to really commit to this. Um, and I'm assuming like everyone had some kind of options, like share options and stuff like, is it what is it exactly what you imagine? Yes, I mean, Uber was positioning itself to take over the world. I mean, that's exactly what people felt like internally, which is a pr- pretty cool vibe. I mean, the product was loved, people loved the product. That's all that really matters, right? As long as people love the product, then you're heading in the right direction. And we were trying new things like flying car programs. We had like, there's Go, uh, GoJet uh, out in Asia where you could you actually just hop on a motorcycle with someone and you hold on to them and it costs like a dollar. <laughs> so all sorts of kind of cool, wild ideas. <laughs> Nothing was off the table. Um, the cultural values here, I mean, here's a couple, like these were identified internally as the company cultural values that like Travis Kalanick went on stage and would present. One was Big Bold Bets. Uh, so to constantly be taking bigger and bolder bets. And then another one was toe-stepping. That was actually encouraged that you should toe-step if you feel that your manager or stakeholders above you are incorrectly parsing and making decisions, like parsing data and making decisions, um, which was really fun. I mean, I actually did that once uh, at a really, really big level, which had to do with the internal employee credits program. So we'd, we would get a certain number of free rides and I felt like it had been configured very poorly. And um, Travis was the one who came up with it, Travis Kalanick. We were forced to call him Travis, by the way. We weren't close or anything, but internally you were supposed to call him Travis. Travis had championed this new internal employee credits program that was very misaligned to folks who had joined post-2016. So I was like, this isn't correct. This isn't how we should treat our employees. And so I started to champion the issue internally on internal, uh, like internal uh, you can imagine like internal forums would be the best way to put it. And Tuan, the CTO of Uber, found me championing the issue and he decided to pull his political weight behind it, which was incredible. So that was super empowering to know that even if though I was like an entry level, non-important person, that if I cared enough about something, you could challenge even the CEO. And I think Uber very much pushed people to do that. And I think that's a wonderful culture. It wasn't, it wasn't like an impolite culture of I'm going to just be rude. It was... I'm principled, we need to get shit done, and if this isn't making the company money, then we need to talk about it, and I don't care how big you are. Um, or if this leads to like higher employee churn or something else, which is what I championed with that issue. So I felt like that was really cool. Uh, same with like in my role and in my function. So I ran App Store Optimization on Growth, and I was in the war room for the new launch of the Writer app. The Writer app is with the app you all call Uber. And I was making, you know, we were making critical, challenging assumptions. Like I would push back on the brand design team on like icon designs. So it was a really empowering culture to know, like if you're principled and you really know what the hell you're talking about, then you should fight for something. So anyways, crack it or sorry, Uber as a whole had this, this vibe of just high intensity, but high, highly principled intensity. Uh, principled confrontation was another cultural value that you should approach things, you know, like if you approach things in a conversation that it should be principled. So all of these things I think inform how I approach defending Bitcoin and how I write about Bitcoin. And um, also I think Uber was very different than most Silicon Valley companies. 
Um, and I, I think that's what I really liked about it is it wasn't Silicon Valley. It was kind of like a very, kind of very edgy Silicon Valley startup. Well, startup. And so you've done eight years in uh, San Francisco as a Bitcoiner, eight and a half years maybe. Uh, so you're going back to what, like, is that 2012 or 2013? Twenty uh, January 2013 is when I came out here. Gen- January 2013. But but were you, you were already aware of Bitcoin at that point, right? Yes, I got into Bitcoin. From what I remember, it was 2012. It's funny, I found a Mt. Gox account creation email in 2011. So technically, it's been around since 11. But I wasn't. It was late, late 11, and I didn't really do anything. So 2012 was when I got in. But as I remember, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure we've talked about this. Didn't you get some of those? What are they called? Cicacious coins? I can't remember what they're called. Yeah, cassacious coins. Those gold You're coins that, that you see. Cassacious. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, my buddy paid me back for a beer in Dallas, Texas, with it. And of course, of course, <laughs> that's funny. as soon as you hear about Bitcoin, the first thing I didn't do was hodl it. I immediately tried to figure out where I could sell it, <laughs> you know, because I didn't understand this thing. I didn't get it right away. I don't think anyone gets it right away, especially back then when there wasn't any great content around it. He was like, yeah, just download Bitcoin QT and there you go. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> which Bitcoin QT is the Bitcoin core oh, client. And, it, you know, it was pretty rough. Like I didn't, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but yeah, 2012 is when I really dived in, really got to understand it, set up a Mt. Gox account, bought some coins. Um, I think a lot of people also think they're like, oh, Dan's been around for a long time. He must have a giant stack. And I'm like, dude, I was like 20, was it like 26? I just out of college and I didn't have much money in, in Texas. <laughs> you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like I mined Bitcoin on my laptop or something. You know, I think there's, I, you know, that's what was funny is that I felt that I was late in 2013 when I was out in Silicon Valley out at these meetups and I met guys who were miners from 2011 people who had bought like 10,000 coins way back in the day so I felt like I was late which is kind of funny well there's a whole other topic where uh you know where people uh people don't hold to their bitcoin and always end up with less I think everyone's got a I should have had this much bitcoin story we can do that one another time okay so like so you heading into Silicon Valley into San Francisco you're a bitcoiner so you've I mean the <laughs> The first couple of Bitcoin, couple of years of Bitcoin, don't. Yes, they're important, of course, but excuse what I'm saying here. But like, they don't really count for the sake of this story. Like, you've been you've been in Silicon Valley for most of the time that you've been able to trade Bitcoin. Let's say, um, yeah. So, yeah. like, as a broad, most of the time, yeah, most of the time it's been tradable. So, has the experience been consistent? Like, have you found across the whole? eight years people have tended to react the same or is it is there at least some maturing yeah so there's been a couple distinct waves in bitcoin over the last uh last eight years i've been out here in silicon valley 2013 was very distinctly bitcoin only but it was a bitcoin for payments narrative and the the reason why it was is that you know when you go pitch vcs you have to use language that they understand Um, it's just like dating you can't go into a date and use very like esoteric language or terms that they don't use. You want to pitch your, your your target audience about why you're a good fit. So on the date, you're like, I like dogs. I like long walks in the park. And with VCs, you need to use VC terminology that will resonate with them. Um, and there's very specific terminology that you have to use. It is a language and a dance that you need to do to a T. Otherwise, you will not get money no matter how good the idea is, no matter how much money you're making. And so with Silicon Valley VCs, what they felt with Bitcoin, the narrative that they, and by the way, the VCs create the narrative. Whatever narrative they want to hear is what you tell them. Uh, It doesn't matter if it's ridiculous, like the VR, AR stuff, which made no sense. For example, with VR, I'm a gamer, by the way. With VR, you break the illusion when you stand up and try to move. And the VR headsets are expensive. The resolution is, is poor. And the gameplay is, is not this like exponential level above. I mean, certainly when I can plug my head into VR, yeah, that would be incredible. Um, and then also I even give the credence of like, okay, let's say the VR headsets come down to $0 in price and have high, super high resolution like it would be in real life. It still doesn't lead to that much more of an immersive experience. Anyways, I'm, I'm just highlighting that as like, it didn't matter though. I mean, Silicon Valley threw billions behind VR startups because the narrative had been set by the top VCs that this is the narrative, this is what's hot. And the little VCs can't do anything about that. The little VCs have to hang on to whatever the big VCs do because the big VCs 
or dictate the tone. And what happens is the little VCs, their LPs, the investors in the VC go, hey, why didn't you do what Sequoia or A16Z did? And so the little VCs just have to pile in on the same trade the big VCs choose. And the big VCs are just like all the GPs combined. So the GPs being the general partners, basically the guys who run the fund, the guys and gals. I mean, we're only talking about like 50 people. <laughs> and so they, they basically create the narrative. Anyways, the narrative in 2013 for Bitcoin was Bitcoin is meant for payments. Bitcoin was here to solve PayPal, fix PayPal. That's a narrative that v Silicon Valley VCs can grok. Most Silicon Valley VCs are not Austrian School of Economics sort of folks. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, uh, digital gold. Totally. Uh, how can we go disrupt this giant fiat banking system? That's pretty too out there for them. They don't want to. I mean, disrupting the government ain't exactly a VC fundable idea. So funding, you know, <laughs> payments related things was super hot. I mean, this is when uh, fintechs in 2013, 2014, fintechs became really hot. So very high narrative market fit with the payments narrative. So all, the, all of the companies in Silicon Valley that were focused on Bitcoin and crypto, we all oriented our efforts around that in order to attract VC capital and attract talent as well. So, you know, in that time, that narrative was pretty popular with Bitcoin. So it was mainly just a Bitcoin-only narrative then. Uh, then you had the 2013 run-up twice. So it went from 10 to 260 well, down to can, 100. Yeah, 100 can, to I ask you something? can I just ask something before we go on to the next bit? So is it a case of, because there's, there's two things here, right? There's firstly explaining Bitcoin and having people understand what Bitcoin is and then trying to explain the products or companies you want to build. Did you struggle? Have you had difficulties with both or just with one side? Oh, totally. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's a dance you really have to learn very well. Um, with my last startup, we pitched like over 50 VCs. You know, it was a, it was a pretty big, pro it was a tough process to go through of like, you have to pitch them. And you, I mean, just like dating, you got to be okay with rejection. You got to put yourself out there. You got to figure out what flaws or what things that they like about you and try to highlight or, or minimize those. So I've gone through that myself from the fundraising process, but also in the product role of like, how do we find product market fit? How do we go build this product? And then also on the marketing side, like how do we go bring this product out to market? And how do we, how do we communicate to customers that this solves a problem for them? So kind of on all three of those levels, I've, I've seen products, products, VCs and, and builders all work together in this con in, around these different narratives. And so with 2013 through 2015, that was largely like the payments narrative. And then in 2015, when Bitcoin was coming off that $1,200 high in 13, 14, mm -hmm. you know, the, the momentum was really lost. VCs will immediately shift their momentum to something else. Um, what they do is they look at what's hot. Now, with the winners, they stick around. You know, if you invested in Coinbase, you stick around because that's like your winner. But if like a narrative dies, they don't do retrospectives. I mean, they want to forget about it. They don't bring it up. They just like let it fade away. Like you just you just want it to fade. Like how many VCs are doing retrospectives on VR? They usually just double down, either double down on it and just like be like, yep, we're just committed for the long term or they just let it fade away. What's crazy about VCs is that when they make bets, it takes five to 10 years for it to play out. So they, it's hard to know if you're right or wrong. So you really have to be convicted in it. And so I don't think they're necessarily bad people or, or dumb people. It's just a game of incentives and it's a game of of how to you know how to identify what's next and what's hot. You know, I don't think there's a science. I'm not sure if there's much of a science to it, right? There's there's like different ways we can minimize our exposure or minimize the bad decision making. But you know, I don't want to wax too philosophically around like what VCs represent. But with Bitcoin and crypto, 2015 is when the blockchain, not Bitcoin, narrative came out. So this is a fresh new narrative VCs can get behind. And now this one's a little bit more boring than the Bitcoin one. It's, it's uh, let's go replace back in architecture for the existing financial system, right? With this new thing called blockchain. We all know blockchain.bitcoin is fucking bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is the stupidest <laughs> narrative I've ever seen in this space. Like it is, you and I have ranted about this on Twitter, but it like in today it was announced and this is very, very, a very, very sweet moment for myself to enjoy and revel in this. IBM is scaling back their blockchain efforts down to just a few people. And I think at the peak, they had a few hundred engineers working on the different blockchain initiatives. And this just highlights how silly that narrative was, is that is the idea you could just like splice out. Well, the narrative got flipped. Yeah. The, the, we're finally seeing the narrative totally fade away. And so. No, but know, I mean, uh, Dan, in like what, 
we would you would flip it. So they were saying, saying blockchain, not big, uh, Bitcoin. Everyone just flipped it back. Then went, no, Bitcoin, not blockchain. It was completely flipped <laughs> against them. Totally, exactly. Like now, it's all Bitcoin driven, and I'll get there in a minute on like what the current narrative is. Um, but yeah, Silicon Valley largely sheltered, like started to you know create this cohesion. Then there was the whole narrative of like, oh, blockchain, not Bitcoin. That's not going to occur in Silicon Valley. That's going to be New York driven because like they understand finance. Well, it turned out no one knew any other shit because blockchain, not Bitcoin, makes no sense. Um, you can't just splice blockchain technology and, and take it out of Bitcoin with no native token to. I mean, the, the reason why a native token exists is that it rewards the miners to, uh, there's a couple of reasons, but one of them is to reward miners to order transactions and behave properly. I don't know how you have a blockchain with the right and right alignment of transactions or like having the transactions in the right order if there isn't this game theoretic block reward that incentivizes them. So anyways, anyone who knew how blockchain tech worked, was they were like, this is silly. And that narrative in 2017 really started to fade as it was outshined by the ICO and Ethereum narrative. So ICOs were the new hot thing. And uh, with ICOs, it was all about disrupting fundraising. You know, we've got these different forms of fundraising like Patreon. We've got um, GoFundMe, Kickstarter. These were all pretty hot ideas. You know, people forget about these. They all, they kind of, even the centralized services here outside of, you know, if we zoom out outside of the Bitcoin sector, it's crazy to see how fast these narratives ebb and flow, right? And so like Kickstarter was huge. I don't know if you guys remember that. I only bought one thing on Kickstarter, by the way. It was Super Troopers 2. <laughs> I was like, I don't even care if it's terrible. I just love you guys. So I'm just going to buy it. And um, that's where this narrative of ICOs came around, where it's like crowdfunding. It's about the idea of tokenized, tokenizing everything. And this was very attractive to VCs because it was kind of, it was that intertwined with a digital, like a, a world computer, decentralized world computer that would, would finally, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate VC pitch. I mean, Vitalik's pitching of this to venture capital and the Silicon Valley was genius. It's irresistible pitch for people in Silicon Valley, particularly engineers. The idea you can build, you know, at that time too, apps and apps. Oh, app, you know, every every hot company at that time, Airbnb, Uber was an app, and this is called a dap. Whoa. And so this, you know, was perfect narrative market fit. And then you loop in the fundraising aspect. So it was a couple different layers of disrupting fundraising. It was disrupting these, you know, big big tech giants that everyone were worried that were take, had, getting too much power. And so it was a perfect narrative market fit. And that's where we saw ICOs explode. I mean, I was out here during that time and like, I mean, everywhere you went, people were talking about ICOs and their buddy invested in an ICO. Their buddy was doing an ICO. That's literally what everyone is doing. They're like, it's going to totally change startup fundraising. You know, now there's a, there was equity before and debt and now there's tokens. Like it's totally going to change everything. But very few of these people in Silicon Valley understood what the heck, like what the heck money was or like why Bitcoin was valuable in the first place. They never spent the time to understand it because as soon as Bitcoin didn't fit that narrative of a cheap PayPal, they just disregarded it like trash. And they're like, it's done. It's dead. It's old. And then Ethereum comes out and we're like, no, we're new, fresh, hot. And we're a decentralized app platform. They're like, cool. I don't even need to think about Bitcoin anymore. This is what's hot. And so... And, and I'm not faulting them for it. I don't think these are dumb people. It's just, it's just how Silicon Valley works is people, you got to chase what's hot to be on top of things, right? And if you chase what's hot at the right time, you might go make 10 or $100 million, you know, or like even as like a non-founder. So, yeah. so it's a big deal. So yeah, well, yeah. And I'm sitting here in Silicon Valley and I'm just like, this is super annoying. This is, <laughs> none of these people have any idea of how Bitcoin works. Most of these people are like scammy. I would say a large percentage of them were just scammers trying to like, they might have scammed something in the healthcare space before this, and now they're trying to scam in, in crypto. And then I had some buddies like raise like $30 million for an ICO. And I'm like, dude, none of you guys have ever even built a product before, you know? So it was just pure insanity at that time. Yeah. Well, look, firstly, a lot of people did make money during that ICO phase. They did um, on things that have failed. People, I think it was Jill Coulson who said to me that, People, some of these people are doing their IPO and their seed round at the same time. Um, yeah, exactly. And they did make a lot of money and they got swept up in it. I guess, Dan, one of the things is, let me ask you, do you think one of the things is, is that Bitcoin is something they can't control? So that bothers them. And then perhaps also, do you think there's ever this like 
fear like back then there was a fear of like the regulatory side like they could build a product but bitcoin might get closed down therefore they couldn't invest in it or do you think has that got nothing to do with it i do think part of its control i think part of its control that's great that you brought that up i think that's uh something that i should have highlighted earlier so yeah it's control it's it's building uh they like things that are constantly being built so any tech company has had to constantly iterate to be relevant there's no tech company out there that just built the first version of it Actually, there's one. <laughs> there's one. I, sorry, I, I Bitcoin. Gonna, Craigslist. <laughs> Craigslist never innovated. Craigslist, yeah. But it does very much highlight how much network effects matter. There's a shelling point around posting an ad and buying something on, or posting like a listing and buying something and or trading something on Craigslist. It doesn't matter how shitty the interface is, which I guess I think gives pretty good credence to Bitcoin. Bitcoin's all about network effect and network effect of storing value in this one network. Yep. So I think like for Silicon Valley, yeah, for Silicon Valley, they're like, okay, Bitcoin isn't innovating. They want to see a lot of code change happen and fresh and they and they look for developers as a signal of what's going to be hot. And all the developers are like, we're building stuff on Ethereum. So it's yeah, one, they can't control it. They can't they can't control it, they can't push, they can't, yeah. I mean, they do really like to push their own narratives. I mean, they want to pump their own companies. Not, um, not, not in like a legal way, but they just want to build it up and they'll use everything within their power to do that. You can't do that with Bitcoin. Also, it's like if their LPs would be like, cool, why am I paying you two and 20 to best invest in Bitcoin? I can go invest in Bitcoin. So they have to like define like, oh, we've got an edge, which are these other protocols. And then as well, like these other protocols fit investment an investment thesis that a lot of them had around like disrupting different type of sectors. There's a decentralized Uber. If you want to go for that, there's a decentralized Airbnb, the decentralized Amazon, aka Filecoin, decentralized whatever you want. We got any flavor of decentralization you'd like. It's like a Black Scholes model of all possible narrative paths for a coin is literally what happened in 2017. I mean, there was like over 10,000 ICOs launched and it was just a Black Scholes model to build as much demand, as much supply as demand required. So demand kept asking for new narratives and supply of these coins met those narratives. Um, and that, I think that's what kind of best succinctly defines what happened in 2017. Next up, I talked to Dan more about why Silicon Valley doesn't get Bitcoin. But before that, I have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, going to welcome a new sponsor of the show, Ledger. Now, Ledger was the first hardware wallet I ever used, and I'm still using the Nano I bought four years ago. I'm a big fan of the product because it is just really easy to use. And for someone like me, you always hear me moan about usability. It's really important, especially for people new coming into Bitcoin. But it isn't just the device. Ledger Live, the interface for safely managing your Bitcoin, is also just as easy to use. And for Bitcoin Core users, Ledger Live will interface with your own full node from the 16th of Feb, including Coin Control, something I discussed with Shinobi recently. So that's very cool. I'm really looking forward to checking out that. They have announced a new promo today. If you buy the Ledger Love Pack, you will get a hardware wallet to securely manage your Bitcoin and a voucher for up to $25 of Bitcoin that you can buy straight away. You can find out more at ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also, Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin and the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. Why is that, Pete? Well, they're badass, right? And also, they're consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. They also have a best-in-class and customer service. So if you've got any shit going on, if you reach out to them, they're going to get that fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Lastly today... It's BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Now with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning interest on your Bitcoin. I'm a customer. I've been customer for over a year. I've earned over one Bitcoin in interest. You can also use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. You can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can fully manage your account on the go. With so much more coming, it's going to be a massive year for the company. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So is 2021 then DeFi? Is that is that the latest narrative? 
Yeah. So, you know, then all the ICOs fade away. Ethereum narrative fades yeah. away. Bitcoin, not blockchain, starts to come in. And, you know, then 2020 hits and COVID hits and Bitcoin really starts to shine. This is Bitcoin's moment, right? It, Bitcoin demonstrated yeah. resiliency and the gold 2.0 narrative started to catch on. And so that's where, you know, Bitcoin was really, really shiny. But yes, to your points earlier, they can't go, yeah, we're just going to go buy Bitcoin as our VC thesis because like that's a publicly tradable asset. That's not the point of being a VC. That's called a hedge fund. So, you know, they still have to go create a new shelling point around another narrative that validates their their value prop as a as a fund allocator, right? Like, do we take LPs money and we go allocate it into private rounds, or or we have information you guys don't have, and that's where we have alpha. So, DeFi is that new latest trend. So, decentralized finance. Um, this is somewhat of a, a word salad that was left over from a few other narratives of like. Um, Oh, there's a couple other ones post 17 that the Ethereum community used. But essentially, this is like their narrative compression of multiple narratives that ebbed and flowed over the last like four years. And DeFi is the most succinct, I think, narrative there. Oh, um, Radical Finance was one, a um, couple other ones as well. Um, so as these narratives ebb and flowed, like they have to create new shelling points for to capture investment and interest. DeFi is a really powerful one because DeFi is one that, you know, the, they try to root in like this is solving a problem. This is solving the problem of trading. This allows people to trade. Decentralized finance. <laughs> yeah, and that's where you know anyone who understands how blockchain technology works. You dig in a little bit deeper, and you're like, wait a second. There's like a kill switch by the by the core dev team, or there's been bailouts, or there's been tons of hacks. There's also like. They're like, yeah, cool. Look, it's just like we have automated market makers, man. Like it's totally going to work for forever. I'm like, okay, wait. So you're telling me you guys have like solved holy grail problems in finance and that, you know, your your decentralized, <laughs> like your DEX is going to weather intense volatility. And once like the big hedge funds come into, you're telling me that these guys won't blow your shit up to where like they go find a little fatal flaw and they're willing to put a billion dollars to get a $3 billion exploit. Like those are the big boy games. Those are those are the ones where, you know, things really start to become real. Like these were mainly like test test net sort of things. So I think, you know, they act like they've solved all these problems perfectly. And I'm like, I don't think you guys understand how finance works. We're like, stuff is very, 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 I mean, you have Soros breaking the pound, right? Like that's a famous one. Um, they're like, well, they're like, yeah, cool. Well, it'll work 99% of the time. And I'm like, well, <laughs> the point is the existing financial system works 99% of the time. What they, what they parade as decentralized finance is semi-centralized and, you know, I, I don't think that's a necessarily a bad or good thing. It's just more of like they try to hide it. And I think that's a little bit annoying. I think they should just be more explicit about it. Like, for example, DeFi, <laughs> DeFi some DeFi um, protocols, you can have locked USDC or, or USDT. Those are completely centralized stable coins that can literally be frozen. So, like, I don't, and, and if that is collateral that's been posted for a smart contract, and then there's, there's another smart contract that relies on that one, then it leads to this daisy chain reaction. And, you know, they're just like, oh, well, that doesn't happen very frequently. And I'm like, I'm like, well, we're not really building decentralized finance here if we've got two 100% centralized stable coins that are underpinning this DeFi financial infrastructure. You know, this isn't just an exchange thing where traders are moving USDT between exchanges to arbitrage certain things. I mean, this is like, you know, a core underpinning of a lot of these smart contracts are now becoming these centralized stable coins. So I think, you know, with DeFi, it's, it's a new hot narrative for Silicon Valley especially with like Robinhood stuff going on. I think that definitely makes them, you know, a little bit more energetic about it. I don't think it has the narrative clout that Bitcoin does. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, it's really hard to understand. You're not going to get retail into that. Like if it's super hard to understand like Bitcoin, all these institutional folks around the world are like, oh yeah, Bitcoin, it's like a store of value gold 2.0. That's really easy for everyone to grok. Everyone knows what gold is. But DeFi, like, how do you explain that simply? It, it's not like the ICO narrative where they're like, oh, dude, this is like the new equity, bro. It's the ICO, IPO. Oh, whoa. Really similar. You know, it's, again, these terms, DAP and APP, ICO, IPO, they're very much like a false equivalency that people naturally make the leap, but they're totally different. And that's where I just think the narrative of DeFi, like, now is a, is a good one for that community. And certainly interesting what they're trying to do, but ultimately, I think, like, their promises fall a little bit flat and also... I don't think people care about that too much at the moment, other than the Robinhood stuff that happened last week. 
people don't care as much whereas bitcoin's gold 2.0 narrative has perfect market for uh, market narrative fit it is resonating at the highest levels of both governments and hedge funds and institutions um so this this is bitcoin's moment to shine and i think silicon valley through all of its kind of flaws in terms of its incentive models and and their how they think through problem solving it's a great mental model to use for almost everything else it's just not good for bitcoin and, and that's why bitcoin is so so different in, in what it is and what, what it represents as a digital gold that I think, you know, even for the folks who look at the most innovative forward thinking technologies, even for them, it was a little bit too hard to grok unless they had the right fundamentals. But there is some movement with Bitcoin now, right? We've seen Square put some money in. We've seen what Jack Dorsey's doing. Coinbase is going to IPO. Um, we've got some other big players now. Blockfire doing very well. Like there are the the I, I would say the shoots or something here. Even though something like Coinbase is huge, their IPO is going to be massive. But like I know now, there is like companies within Silicon Valley or you know even New York who are, are having success. Have you noticed like a recognition of that? Like, is there anything recently? Is the is the Bitcoin narrative starting to work? Definitely. Yeah. There's um, <clears throat> a lot of the people okay. who bought into ICOs and Ethereum are largely disillusioned in Silicon Valley. Um, unless they're folks building on it, they're going to just be super convicted till it goes to zero. You know, they don't want to be, I think they're just so convicted in it that they don't want to admit anything. So um, for the more, for the folks who are more like in the middle, who hadn't really made up their mind yet and hadn't really been like a Bitcoiner or an Ethereum person, um, I would say almost all of them have gone Bitcoin. And I'm talking like really high up tech execs at companies that I work that I know that are really well known out here, which I've talked to many of them personally. The Bitcoin narrative is is very understandable now for these. Like, I see like the moderates all switching over. Even some of the core like hardcore Ethereum folks are like, "Hey Dan, like I've had a few people reach out and they're like, "Hey Dan, you're right, like you're right," and I've switched Sorry, over. Man. Just want to let you know. <laughs> It's it's kind of a weird feeling where they're like, I want to let you know, um, I just hold Bitcoin now, you know. Um, not that I pressured them to do that. They just know that I speak about it all the time. And whenever we talk in person, four years ago, that's all I wanted to talk about was Bitcoin. And I think they're starting to come around to that. So, yeah, I would say the tide has shifted quite a bit. I wouldn't be surprised though it shifted back to DeFi if a lot of these, if these start to pump really, really hard. And and that's where, you know, it's really hard about crypto and like understanding what actually has traction or not is valuations. Like the valuations are a signal to traditional VCs that this this idea has traction in the market because they're raising money and they're making money. And that means that it's successful. Now, I know there's a lot more nuance behind that. I'm just overly generalizing here. And with protocols, the problem is that the valuation is completely disconnected from any fundamental value. And so the VCs see these protocols with these valuations and they're like, oh, that's value. And I'm like, yes, sure, it's it's a market cap and a valuation, but it is very disconnected from anything resembling protocol market fit or product market fit is the old terminology for it, that the protocol is solving a problem for someone. It's not doing that. People are speculating that it will solve a problem for someone someday. And those are two very different things because one is rooted in like, a real world customer problem that is being solved and ultimately value is driven there. The other one is hypothesizing that it will create value and that violates some like core fundamental thinking in Silicon Valley, which is around like you were always obsessed around solving customer problems. When you do that and you build products to do that, every great product is built that way. Ultimately that's what a business does. You build a product that solves yeah. a problem. That's it. And you know, VCs, you know, they, again, these guys aren't like digging in, like, yes, they call in experts, but they're looking at so many different deals. They can't dig in really in depth on like certain topics. So they see these valuations and they're like, cool, it has traction. I don't need to think about it anymore. Um, versus like really digging in right, and going, wait okay. a second. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they're like, so, so they recognize that like the magic internet money exists, but they haven't really spent the time looking at the economics, thinking about monetary policy, looking at Aus Australian economics, as you talked about. They just see like, there's a digital internet money that uh, people are buying and getting rich off. And I guess that we've maybe have got to that point where it's almost a little bit embarrassing to not be in Bitcoin. Like you can miss it in 13, perhaps in 17 because nobody cares. But like now with the sailors of the world, Jack Dorsey putting money in, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a big swing with what Elon Musk is saying. Like 
you don't want to be the guy now says oh no i don't believe in bitcoin jack dorsey was huge for bitcoin it was not appropriate to say you liked bitcoin in silicon valley in 2017 that was considered like a death sentence for your career and i certainly took a career hit by saying i like bitcoin which is ridiculous right i mean it's absurd (laughs) and so what had happened was in silicon valley you cannot go against the grain of the narrative because then you're saying to all the big vcs you're wrong you're saying to all the smartest product people and tech leaders you're wrong and you don't ever want to be on that side. And Silicon Valley is not about thinking independently. It is very much a crowd chasing thing where everyone piles into the same trade. Silicon Valley does not reward independent thinking. They reward independent thinking as long as it's within the genre of how they like to think about it. So, you know, Jack going out and saying, I like Bitcoin was very, very brave and, and different and bold. That was, you know, everyone else was like, you're wrong. You know, it's definitely Ethereum and DeFi. It's Ethereum and ICOs and... It's this whole like DAP system and Jack's like, I like Bitcoin, man. And that's it. Um, Which we got to give a hat tip to Miles Sutter for that because I believe Miles was pretty critically important. You know, he's, uh, you know, thank you for helping Orange build Jack. Yeah, he's, Miles is an awesome guy, by the way. Met him him a bunch of times in person. He's done done some great work for Bitcoin. Um, But yeah, that's where now we're starting to see the tide shift where Elon Musk is like, I like Bitcoin. And if we start to see some other big tech leaders switch over, that'll be huge because all of them were very big Ethereum people where, I mean, they were full on board and, and like you would not get promoted within their companies if you felt that way. I mean, I've heard this at certain, I'm not going to name the ones, certain giant crypto companies in Silicon Valley, not Kraken. If you like Bitcoin, you were very much, and I've heard this from folks internally, you were very much not, uh, you, you were not put in an advantageous position. You either were fully on board with Ethereum and DeFi or you were free to have your opinion and and you wouldn't be relevant. So, wow. yeah, Silicon Valley was very much anti-Bitcoin. Not even just pro-Ethereum, it was anti-Bitcoin. So, um, you know, that's where I stood up and said, I'm going to be a loud voice for Bitcoin. I don't care what it means for my career. And and it's also right. <laughs> so, yeah, and and that's where, you know, I felt I felt like I had to write, I wrote... Silicon Valley doesn't understand Bitcoin recently as a newsletter on my Dan Held Substack newsletter. And I wrote that, and that's what we're talking about today, because I felt so frustrated. And I felt that no one had really told the story of why does this happen? And when I published this, by the way, I had an overwhelming amount of folks come in on Twitter. And you can go check out the tweet storm. So if you check out that tweet storm, go look at the quotes with replies. And you'll see some of the top people uh, in crypto, like big product leaders, be like, this is exactly my experience in Silicon Valley with VCs, with how things are built. So I felt like someone should tell the story because I think a lot of people are like, well, what the hell was Silicon Valley thinking in 2017 and 2015 and now? And again, they're not bad people. They're not dumb people. It's just they have different incentives and they have a different mindset. And that mindset works though. It works for so many other things. And so I can see why they're like, well, look, it worked for all these other ideas I evaluated. Let me copy paste it for Bitcoin. And so it's been a little frustrating because... You know, one, like you want to feel part of a community, right? Like anyone, even, even Bitcoiners mm-hmm. within Bitcoin, there's our, there are uh, the different, you and I are in our own kind of like for mainstream part of Bitcoin. And some folks in Bitcoin are a little bit more niche and that's where anyone wants to feel, everyone wants to feel like they're part of a group. And it was very, very isolating being in Silicon Valley, knowing that like you're going against the grain so hard that you know, you're, you're in like a little bit of a no man's land. Um, but ultimately now I feel very much vindicated. I feel excited. I mean, I just wish they wouldn't have made it such a, such like a detrimental thing to a career path, you know, to go against the grain. But I also get it as well. Like you can't, if you're the big guys, if you're the big, big VCs and you're, you're all, you're all the other money and you're all the other startup founders, you can't allow these other narratives to exist. Like otherwise people question why you're right. And, (laughs) And they can't be like, oh, yeah, Dan's got some good points. Um, you know, what we're building is is probably, sh- you know, shite. <laughs> like, you can't, you can't do that. You just have to be like, no, we're totally right. And we're right. And the big VCs that backed us are totally right. So we're just going to go try it and and be heads down and go do it. Um, so I get it. You, you can't allow for that other narrative to exist. And that's why they had to, like, you know, really kind of punish Bitcoiners so hard in 2017. So, so do you think now... Do you think now there will be a shift 
do you think there will be some interest within Silicon Valley about investing into Bitcoin companies, or do you just think they're just going to be buying Bitcoin and it's most of the uh, most of the actual companies that are going to be built? Uh, it won't be from a serious interest from the VCs in Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, I think I think VCs will will back a lot of different Bitcoin only companies. They'll back bigger tech companies. I think that we're going to see a ton of investment made. Um, there's a lot of very lucrative crypto businesses, including Kraken, right? Like Kraken's doing phenomenally well. You can you look at Coinbase and Kraken's trading volume and you compare that to a year ago and you're like, whoa, this is huge. So there's going to be a lot more VC investment, in particular around trading. I think trading is always the permanent narrative in the space. Whatever narratives ebb and flow, you got to trade in and out of those narratives. So anything trading related, I think, is the only thing I've seen survive from 2013 in terms of companies. Um, but I do think tech leaders will slowly start to signal more Bitcoin. I mean, if Elon's on the train, Jack Dorsey, by the way, is like a Silicon Valley icon. Um, you know, those two are huge. That starts to create some momentum. And I think that momentum will, you know, they still may in, go invest in DeFi and other projects. But I think you'll see more companies start to disclose that they own a Bitcoin position. I mean, all of us are crossing our fingers for Tesla, right? We're all hoping that Tesla has bought some Bitcoin. You know, that's What do you the- think, though? <laughs> What's your read? Uh, I'll tell you mine afterwards. What's your read on the uh, Elon situation? Just with like him and Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think some big tech leader has orange-pilled Elon or someone close to him because he didn't really seem that interested for such a long time. And now he's bringing it up not only in his Twitter bio, but he's also bringing it up on Clubhouse last night. I think part of that is because he saw like what happened with Robinhood, and he, I think he, in these moments there's a there's a lens the the world now with this new lens that you see the world through. Like COVID had the same sort of thing, the whole world comes comes into clarity, and so does Bitcoin and and how Bitcoin interacts with the world. Right? You're like, okay, so Bitcoin makes sense now. I get it. I think that's probably what happened for him is like both that catalyst moment plus the right folks orange pilling him, you know. But with him. I mean, he's 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 pretty libertarian sort of guy. He's very anti-government. He's moving to Texas, mm-hmm. uh, to Austin. So I think Elon, like I could see him taking some of Tesla's treasury and buying Bitcoin. I could also see him personally disclosing a position. I think him and others kind of see it as a rallying cry of like you've got this Wall Street bets ebb and flow of their narrative of like fighting back against Robin Hood. But Bitcoin's narrative has been there all along. It's much easier to create a shelling point around Bitcoin's anti banking anti-government narrative than to go pop up a new one and have like a whole community network effect all built around that. So Bitcoin's shelling point around it being the financial revolution, I think is probably the strongest shelling point out of anything with like DeFi, uh, Wall Street bets, Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's is so strong that the whole rebellion goes around that. I don't, you know, with these rebellions, it's kind of like Black Lives Matter, like Black Lives Matter wasn't just about Black Lives Mattering. It mattered. It was about a whole host of issues, but people can't go do their protest for a hundred different types of issues. You want to gather around the largest shelling point issue at the moment, and that's what that was. Black Lives Matter, and they're, they're by the way, their issues are very critically important. I'm not trying to diminish from that. I'm just saying that with, when these movements happen, people are just ready for a change, and then they all go around one movement. You can't have a hundred different movements, and so our Wall Street bets, DeFi, and Bitcoin are kind of like somewhat intersected together. And then there's ultimately going to be one big movement that everyone rallies behind. And I think that's going to be Bitcoin. It's singular. It's persistent. It's easy to understand. It's embraced by everyone, both the large you know, institutional types and retail. So I just, it's hard for me to see any other narrative that this rebellious feeling, you know, really uh, collects around. I wonder if the cycle is the issue as well, because you're either in bull market feeling like you've missed it or in bear market feeling like it's dead. I wonder if that affects the psychology of the people investing because when the bull market hits, you don't have much time and it feels so quick. You feel like, you know, you've left behind. Like right now, even for me, and I've stacked a lot of Bitcoin this last couple of years, I look at 35,000, oh, do I want to buy any more? And I won't. And then it will go up to 90 or I'll buy a little bit and it'll go up to 90. I was like, shit, should have bought some more. And then, and then where, wherever we'll end up, we'll go into a bear market. I'll be like, well, I don't want to buy now because I might go lower. And I wonder if that same psychology affects investing in companies because they're like, well, I don't want to invest in a company now because by the time their product's ready, you know, we'll have missed this. And they don't want to invest in a bear market because they think the, 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 the Bitcoin's dead. Do you think there's any 
substance to that? I think, you know, it, it's funny because like when I came into Silicon Valley, I thought VCs were contrarian and they're very much not contrarian. They very much buy into what, whatever narrative is hot. And, and the reason why is it's a financial incentive. Again, they're LPs. If you're a smaller fund to look at the big funds and they're like, why aren't you investing in cool VR stuff like A16Z or Sequoia is? Not saying that that's b- mm. bad or good, just the idea that like your investors also are humans. They want to know what's cool and hot and they expect you to go chase that. You know, that's where I think like when it comes to when it when it comes to all of, like when it comes to the the space like it you know for for Bitcoin I think there's just it, it sets a shelling point around it I just don't really see anything else really gathering much steam and I think that are they going to put in their own money are they going to invest in it I could definitely see it being more of the like their own money play again the VCs can't put their funds into it they can but like it's weird because it's like cool well you just invested in something publicly traded I can do that too. But I think it's more going to be like a personal allocation notification where like Mark Andreessen might come out and be like, I own $100 million worth of Bitcoin. You know, a Chamath is a great example of that. You know, Chamath has just been kind of tearing it up on social media. He's a, one of the wealthiest people in the world, a big tech icon, and he's been, you know, really touting Bitcoin. And I think that's where Bitcoin will become the rallying cry. But not only can it become the rallying cry, but you can rally your portfolio around it, which is really awesome. Um and when Bitcoin moves in these different stages, like a Bitcoin has largely been de-risked. Like when I got into it, when it was $10, you know, there was a lot of risk. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. The, the infrastructure was so shaky. Mt. Gox was 90% of trading volume. And when that collapsed, we were all like, is it going to come back? Uh, same with Silk Road. When Silk Road collapsed, we weren't sure how much demand was, was driven by Silk Road. So Bitcoin went through a bunch of, and then Civil War in 2017. Um, so Bitcoin went through all these scary stages. Right now, the risk reward has never been better. Maybe some VCs look at everything with the lens of like early stage investing where they expect a hundred X payoff. What's crazy is with Bitcoin, you might actually get that. <laughs> you could actually get a hundred X payoff and still have very minimal risk. I mean, Bitcoin does not have the same operational risk that an individual company has. It's a protocol, it's a network. You know, it's very different than like, oh, will my ride sharing app survive or not? So I would say Bitcoin has the best reward risk reward. Um, you know, skew out there. Like if you're going to go deploy money and you're high risk and you, you think Bitcoin's a high risk investment, there's no better return for that risk. Like you can do early stage startups, but you know, one out of a hundred of those will survive. And that's where I think, I think maybe VCs will start to view it through the lens of this risk reward profile and start to realize how big of a deal this is, even though they might perceive it as late stage, but I think we're still very early. Bitcoin at a 30 K market cap is tiny. Um, Bitcoin, I don't think, has really even touched upon the gold 2.0 thesis until it's between like two and ten trillion, and then it starts to really—that's that's like it's early, not early adulthood, but that's like the teenage years. Adulthood is, is is far greater than that value, and so we're talking, you know, at least in the hundreds of thousands for that price, for that that sort of like uh, product market fit. So we're very very far away from that, and not not we're not far away from that. We're we are very far away from. You know, Bitcoin realizing its ultimate valuation of like, I think between 10 and 100 trillion seems probable, like in the long term. And that's where I think like VCs, once they understand that, I think that might be attractive to them. But I think right now they think it's too late. You know, they think that they thought in 2016, 17 is too late. And and now they're thinking it's too late. And so I think that mindset... That might be for everyone of like, I'm too late, but for VCs, they're always trying to find what's early. And so they definitely might skew more on we're too late right now. Well, you could also hypothesize that in a hyper Bitcoinization world, that the power shift of investing will, will go towards the Bitcoiners. They'll be the ones with the capital. Totally. There's some really cool game theory that can play out where like those who invested in Bitcoin early and hodled a really long time will have such large amounts of wealth that they'll change how capital allocation across the world looks in terms of like what, what you know, outs, like when these Bitcoiners sell their Bitcoin, well, what do they go put it in? Or what do they go invest it in? And so we might see, you know, a really interesting world where like Bitcoiners start to pop up VC funds and start to think about how like, not only how to allocate money into Bitcoin startups, which I think is a little bit boring. It's like, cool. Okay, you just like, it's a circular loop there. It's like, how do Bitcoiners apply their lens of how we see the world with every other asset? I think that's where things get really, really cool, where Bitcoiners start to, due to this like really long time 
horizon due to our ability to reduce our time preference and, and have this very long-term time preference, we can now reallocate all the wealth in the world to things that are much more you know, anti-fiat sort of like ways that they perceive the world and how they, they allocate money like towards like very, very like kind of more pure capitalist plays. Um, of course, Bitcoiners are free to invest their money in whatever they like, but I mm-hmm. do think Bitcoiners have very critical, critical thinking mindset of like, we were early with this and they would be very cautious with how they allocate wealth in the future. Decentralized Valley, man. It's the future. All right. This is really useful, Dan. Good to hear you talk about this. Is there anything I've not asked you about this subject you wish I had? It's a good question. I think I think we covered it. Um, you know, maybe just a little bit more on the I could maybe give like two notes on the um the builder side. Yeah, please do. Okay, so we've covered a lot of the VC stuff, but I think we haven't touched on as much the builder side, like when you go build software products. So the way this works internally is like we are constantly thinking about our product roadmap. Our product roadmap is like what direction are we going to steer our product being the ship? Should we go left? Should we go right? Should we go forward? And when you do this, it takes a lot of planning. Like you got to go and you got to talk to these other teams where there's interdependency of our code with their code, with our engineers and their designers there's a lot of interdependencies here there's a lot of politics too because if you're taking away engineers from one project your project has to really be like really has to shine why you need those resources so when it comes to building products in silicon valley you're constantly iterating and shifting your competitors are operating very very quickly and shipping code Uh, instagram for example stole snapchat's thunder around with instagram stories because instagram didn't have instagram stories before instagram stories were a way for them to tap into the sentiment of people switching over to Snapchat to get these ephemeral stories. So you always have to innovate. And if you innovate fast enough, you could thrive, survive, and maybe kill your competitor. And so that's where this constant state of iteration is what Silicon Valley constantly thinks of in terms of building things. So when you go, hey, I've got this software, it's called Bitcoin, and we're never going to change it. <laughs> they're like, they're like, okay, well, that's going to fail. I just know it's going to fail because everything else that I've seen that never innovated failed. And it's like, yes, for, for software, like a, a weather app and a social media app that, that works, but for money, you don't want to be changing money all the time. Money is the, the core foundational layer of the financial system. You can't be tinkering with it and yellowing into it. It can't, it can't break. Like that's what they don't understand. It can't break. I mean, most engineers have never built a product that can't break. They just go patch it or fix it. Um, That's why if you look at server uptime for big companies like Google and Amazon, they give you their uptime based on months or years, not based on duration the company's been around. (laughs) And and so it's just a completely (laughs) different mindset to build a product for Bitcoin, which is a foundational layer for money. They, They just they just don't really grok like how delicate this is. I mean, it's like, it's like a fucking rocket launch. Like if there's a little, if there's a paper clip that's been dropped in the fuel tank, it's going to explode. You know, if your if your altitude trajectory is off by 1%, it'll tumble. You know, they, it is so precise and requires so much finesse to have it go right. I don't think they really appreciate that. And, and it's not because again, these are smart people. It's just because they haven't th- thought about building something like this before. So they've used the lens that they've used before to build products those products have been great. They've been great weather apps, social media products, whatever products it may have been. But for the product of being money, the foundational layer of, of all uh, the fi- the layer of the entire financial system, I don't think they understand how important it is not to change. Yeah. Well, it's a killer episode, Dan. Um, really appreciate you going through this with me, and obviously your experience is uh, is, is really useful. And I do I do think we're just starting to see that shift now, like more recently. Uh, but it's only pioneers. It is Jack Dorsey and it is potentially Elon. And, you know, I've got to throw Sailor in there anyway because I think he's inspired a lot of people there. But it's, it will be fascinating to see uh, if there is a shift over this uh, this latest bull market. All right, mate. Well, listen, look, again, as ever, tell people where they can sign up for your newsletter or follow you and all the cool stuff you're doing, my man. Yeah, so if you Google Dan Held Substack, that's my email newsletter. It comes out on Thursdays. If you like a really frank, really forward version of me, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> I just let it loose. It's uh, I don't go through editing. I just let it go. I don't know if you knew this, Pete, but I just let it go. I don't do any editing. Um, that comes out every week on Thursdays. I didn't know that. And then if you want to follow me for like kind of my up, like up to the minute sort of thoughts, follow me on Twitter. Uh, Dan Held on Twitter. Yeah. 
Uh, I will just say these emails are fucking great. Um, there's a few emails I really like. I really like uh, Marty Bent's, but I really like yours. Yours is different. Like Marty's is a, is um, a lot more technical, uh, so it helps me understand some of the more technical stuff. But yours are more kind of like narratives about specific topics you're going to teach people about. Uh, sign up, people. It's brilliant. Links are in the show notes. Dan, love you, man. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time, dude. Thanks for having me, bro. Always a pleasure. Cheers. All right. What do you think of that one? Gotta love Dan, right? Dan absolutely crushed it again. The first show has absolutely crushed it. Can't wait to get the third show out. That's going to be coming out on Sunday. I'm loving this series. He is one of my best mates in Bitcoin. I've got to know Dan really well over the last couple of years. He really knows his shit, and I'm always picking his brain. And also, his email is just super useful. He really explains things in an easy-to-understand way. He is also the first person I've seen really address Silicon Valley and Bitcoin. It wasn't something I thought about too much until Dan broke it down in his email and I said to him, look, we've got to make a show about this and this ended up becoming a whole series. Anyway, listen, we'll be back on Sunday with a bonus show to wrap up this series. I'm going to go through a path to a Bitcoin standard, which should be an interesting conversation. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you've got any questions or feedback, you know you can get in touch with me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, just head over to iTunes, leave me a review. Hopefully you think I deserve five stars. If you think the show is shit and you want to leave me one star, I accept that. That's just the way it goes. But I would love you if you leave a five-star review. Also, head over to neveredit.com. You can sign up to my daily email, tech, Bitcoin, and macro every Monday to Friday. And also, head over to defiance.news. We've got a banging new show, The Walls of Wall Street Best, where we tell the crazy story of everything that happened with GameStop and that group of degen gamblers on Reddit. Any questions? Hello at whatbitcoindig.com. Have a wonderful weekend. Love you all. See you all soon.